We're going to pick up the uh, parable, if you will, in Acts 9. We've been observing thus far the last couple of months in Acts how the Holy Spirit is supernaturally empowering the followers of Jesus Christ to accomplish and finish the work of Jesus Christ on planet Earth because God's work requires God's power. Amen? Let's say it together. God's work requires God's power. Some of you this week are going to have to do God's work, and if you try and do it in your power, you're going to fail. Some of you are parents. Some of you are grandparents. If you try and do the work of parenting or the work of grandparenting in your own power, you will fail. That's where prayer comes in. By the way, moms and dads, keep praying, keep praying, keep praying for your children or grandchildren. There's no power like it. So we've seen the growth of the gospel throughout the first eight chapters of Acts. We've also seen the growth of the opposition to the gospel. Teddy, why is Mike over there? That's a loving man. Mike, you can move over there if you want to. It's your call. <laughs> Just saying, it's Mother's Day, you know. We have no problem with public humiliation in this class. For those of you that are new with us, not a problem at all. It wasn't because of the fight. No, no, he loves you. That's why he sat over on that side. He wanted to give you some freedom. Yes, I, 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 I got it. Uh, Mike, I can keep inventing reasons here while we're going. Anyway, let's go back to the text before I dig a deep hole. Thousands have been saved coming to faith, and Satan's been ramping up opposition to the gospel as well, inciting a persecution. Thousands and thousands have been persecuted, some are in jail, and one of the ringleaders of this prosecution is a very interesting guy. He's a maniac with a mission, and his name is Saul, and we're going to talk about Saul today. So Saul goes on a rampage. He's imprisoning Lots and lots and lots of Christians. He arrests them, imprisons them, puts them on trial, and votes for their murder. So he's a murderer. And we're going to this week look at the most astonishing transformation of a life in the history of Christianity, probably. Saul's conversion is one of the watershed events in Christian history. It's literally repeated three times in the book of Acts. Now, one of the ways you can determine what God thinks is important in the Bible is to look at how much ink it takes, right? When something in Scripture takes a lot of ink, when God gives it a lot of press, it means it's really important. And we repeat something three times, he's telling you this is significant. Now, St. Paul, Saul, into St. Paul, his conversion is repeated three times. Acts 9, Acts 22, Acts 26. Luke recounts it here. Paul gives his testimony in front of the Jews in chapter 22, gives his testimony in front of the Romans in chapter 26, so we have three times. Here's the key idea. You can cross-reference Romans 1.16. Jesus' love is the power of God that can change anyone, even... And you're supposed to fill in the blanks. Because I, I know that you all have people on your list that you're going, you know something, the power of Jesus Christ to change people, it's pretty strong, but he cannot change... My kid, my grandkid, my brother, my sister, my mother, my boss, my coach, my... That person is outside the range of the love of God. Not true. No one is outside the range of the love of God. Jesus Christ can change anyone. Once you take a look at the Apostle Paul, who was the persecutor and blasphemer Saul, you will never limit the love of Jesus Christ to change people. So I want you to build a list of people that on your... God needs to change this person and he can't do it. Let's start praying for him. All right? Acts 9, verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Christ, went to the high priest, 
asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Saul is the subject of this chapter, but the real star, of course, is the Holy Spirit. We know that Saul was born in the city of Tarshish, which is located on the modern-day border of, of Syria and Turkey. So, Rob, I'm going to ask you to put the map up. This is just a very brief map of the really the Mediterranean. We want to focus on the eastern end of it. If you look on the map, you'll see Jerusalem, and you'll see a line going up to Damascus. That's the trip we're going to talk about today, line number one. He goes from Jerusalem to Damascus. After his conversion, line number two, he goes to Arabia for about three years, spends some alone time with the Holy Spirit to teach him, goes back to Damascus, and then, and only then, three years later, he goes on line number four back to Jerusalem, which is the extent of this chapter, except the very last verse of this chapter, you're going to see number five and number six where they ship him back to Tarshish because there's too much death and murder going on. So keep that map up there and we'll walk through this. The city of Tarshish is a very ancient city. It's got a 6,000 plus year history. So this, this has been settled by human beings for quite some time. There were three great universities in the ancient world, Athens, Alexandria, and Tarshish. It was very, very well known for its university, kind of like the Ivy League schools, the Harvard Neals of, of our time. Alexandria, Egypt, Athens, Greece, and Tarshish, Syria were three great universities that period of time. It's about 12 miles inland off the Mediterranean Sea on the Sindus River, currently called the Burdan River. It's a trade and shopping center, trade and shipping center. I guess you could shop there too, right? If you ship, you can shop. So I guess people shop there. But it was very, very much a commercial port. Um, very important to understand, the citizens of Tarsus received Roman citizenship in 66 BC. Now, Roman citizenship was very, very important because Roman citizenship guaranteed your civil rights. If you were not a Roman citizen, your civil rights were very much constrained. You were not just second class. You could be persecuted and, as a matter of fact, uh, tortured without a trial. So having citizenship is critical. We're going to see that later in Paul's life. So Paul was born a Roman citizen, but he also grew up in a very, very devout Jewish home. All Jewish males had to learn a trade. There was a Jewish proverb that says, if you fail to teach your child a trade, you teach him to steal. So all Jewish males learned to trade, and Saul was trained to weave cloth out of goat's hair and make it into strips so they could make tents out of it. So later on, we know that Paul was a tent maker. That, that's what his trade was. In Philippians 3, Paul gives us a bit of a description about himself. So Philippians 3, 5, for those of you who want to check that later on, Paul says, this is what I was like at this point in time. I was circumcised on the eighth day. All Jewish males were circumcised on the eighth day. Of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. That means if you evaluated Saul's life, on the basis of his historical ability to keep the Jewish law perfect. You could not look at his life and say, you broke this ceremonial law, you broke this dietary law, you broke this Sabbath law. He kept the Jewish law perfectly. Now, he was very zealous, he was very devout, and he was also very, very self-righteous. At age 13, when Jewish males become a son of the law, Saul would have been shipped from Tarsus to Jerusalem to study. His teacher was who? Gamaliel. 
Gamaliel was the preeminent scholar of his era. He was probably the preeminent scholar for a number of eras. He was so highly regarded by the Jewish people that he was called the beauty of the law, which means when he lectured, when he taught the Hebrew scriptures, it was absolutely a stunningly beautiful thing to behold. He was just an eloquent expositor of the Jewish scripture. He was the most celebrated scholar of his era. He was, in our parlance, a rock star. This guy was a rock star, and Saul was his most celebrated pupil. Saul, like most rabbis, would have probably memorized the entire Old Testament. Pretty significant, right? Most of us think but memorizing a verse or two is a big deal. If you didn't have a book or two under your belt by the time you were a son of the law at 13, something was wrong with your brain, and by the time you were 18, you had most of it memorized as a rabbi. So Saul had the equivalent of a PhD, probably a couple of them, in Judaism and another one in Greek, which meant he was a brilliant academic. Saul was one of the finest minds of his era. He was a ferocious debater, and he was incredibly proud. I mean, he kept the law, and he knew he kept the law, and he was convinced that that law-keeping was what made him righteous. Like Stephen, he was a Hellenistic Jew. A Hellenistic Jew is a, a Greek-speaking Jew that was born outside the land. He was not born in Israel. He was born in Tarsus, which is several hundred miles north. But he was fluent in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. Very, very, very bright guy. Saul had a problem. He wasn't just content to obey the law and teach it to others. He dedicated himself to enforcing obedience of the law to the point of murdering anybody who wouldn't follow it. Now, that's a little extreme, right? You either follow the law or I kill you. Saul is radical in the sense that a jihadist is radical. Understand where I'm going with this. For a jihadist today, giving your life or taking another's life is expected in the service of religious purity. Do you understand that? Giving your life, laying down your life, or taking somebody else's life in the service of religious purity is normal. It's expected. We look at that and we say, that's off the charts radical. Yeah, that was Paul. That was Saul. The Old Testament, see, here's what made Saul so angry. The Old Testament predicted that the Messiah was going to come as a conquering king, right? A ruling, conquering king. He was going to put all the nations under his thumb. He was going to free the nation of Israel, and he was going to be... A conquering king. Now, this Jesus of Nazareth was obviously a false messiah in Saul's mind. This Jesus of Nazareth didn't conquer anything. He was crucified. You know who got crucified back in that era? Common criminals. The lowest of the low got crucified. Jesus of Nazareth obviously could not be the messiah. There was rumors of his resurrection, but they were clearly fabrications. Nobody gets raised from the dead, especially if they're a criminal. And anybody who followed Jesus was an infidel. Anybody who followed Jesus was corrupting the Old Testament scripture. And they were defiling Judaism. Do we have a religion today where this kind of thinking takes place? Of course. We not only have a religion where this takes place, we are moving into political systems where to disagree with them incurs this level of wrath, right? So we look and we say, oh, I don't know about all this radicalism. The culture is moving radical. That's the nature of the beast, not just religiously, but politically. You just have to understand that. And Saul basically said, 
any Jew that promotes a doctrine that diverges or differs from the Mosaic law, what? Is an idolater. You know what the Mosaic law said you do with idolaters? You stone them. That's why Stephen got stoned. Because he was teaching a doctrine that the Jews said, this is not the law of Moses. You're teaching that Jesus Christ is a Messiah. He clearly is not. He's not a conquering king. He got slaughtered like a common criminal. So Saul has been going on a rampage. It says he was ravaging the church. And last week we talked about ravaging. You know what a, ra a ravaging is a picture of a wild boar. I don't know if you've ever seen a wild boar. These are not little sweet little oinkers, right? A wild boar literally uproots, shreds, and turns to ribbons everything in front of it, whether it's people, whether it's animals, whether it's food, they can ruin a pasture in very, very short order. So it's a, it's a picture of destruction. Luke records that Saul laid waste the church. That's a good picture. <coughs> laid it waste. Wherever he went, he was in the process of destroying, right? Acts 26, Saul is describing this period of life. And here's what he says in Acts 26, verse 9. He's talking to the Romans and he's recounting his testimony, and he says as part of his testimony, So then, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. He's voting for the death penalty for anybody, any Jew, Hellenistic or otherwise, who doesn't follow the law of Moses and teaches Jesus Christ as Messiah. Verse 11. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. Interrogation. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Now remember, when the persecution came, many Christians left Jerusalem and fled to foreign countries. Saul is now going on an international search and destroy mission. It says, I want you to get this picture, get a pen out, you're going to need to underline this. It says he is still breathing, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. The literal translation for breathing in is he's breathing in. It doesn't say he's breathing out murder, it says he's breathing in murder. It says what gave him life, what animated him, his life's breath was the murder of Christians. Do you understand that? Years and years ago, I studied karate with a, with a guy who loved to fight. Loved to fight. I mean, I'd fight, but I didn't love it. He loved it. This, this guy, nothing pleased him more than a barroom brawl. I mean, he got a high off a barroom brawl. That's what he enjoyed doing. And it was his lifeblood. He came alive when he was in the middle of a fight. That was Saul. Saul was most alive when he was persecuting and murdering Christians who were Jews and he thought they were religious infidels. That's what gave him juice. Saul was to the Christians what Haman and Hitler was to the Jews. Saul was an exterminator. Saul was a death squad organizer. That's what he did. So when you look at Saul pre-Christ, this guy's an animal. This guy's a butcher. This guy could run Auschwitz. No problem. In the name of the Mosaic Law. Okay? We have people in our world that do this today. It says over and over again when you read the re account of Saul's 
uh, ravaging the church, it says he was so heartless that he imprisoned men and women. What's the implication of that? What happens to the family if mom and dad are in prison? What happens to the children? You know something? He didn't care. He had break up the family. Not a problem. In the name of the law, right? I want you to look at the city of Damascus on the map. Saul is now going to head out for Damascus in chapter 9, verse 1. So Damascus now, along with Jericho, is one of the world's oldest cities. It's been around 8,000 years. It's about 2,200 feet above sea level. Jerusalem's about 2,500 feet, so they're about parallel elevations at that point in time. Damascus is about 60 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea, so you can get there. It's the capital city of Syria, located in the southwest corner of the country. Total population of Damascus at that time was about 150,000 people. That's a big metropolitan area in about 34, 35 AD. 150,000 people, no mass transit, no, you know, I mean, you're walking. You are walking with 150,000 people and the camels and et cetera, et cetera. It's about 160 miles almost due north of Jerusalem. If you were going to try and get from, from Jerusalem to Damascus, it took about six days by caravan to get there. Now, it was a gorgeous city. It was called the Paradise of the Desert. It was green, alabaster white, beautiful, beautiful place. And it had an estimated 40 synagogues, 40 synagogues, very strong Jewish colony in the city of Damascus. So Saul has already laid waste Jerusalem. He's put a lot of people in prison. A lot of other people have left. He's now looking for more Christians to butcher. And he knows there's a big colony of Jewish Christians in uh, Damascus. And so he goes to the chief priests and he asks for permission to pursue them and bring them back. Now, the Romans had given the Sanhedrin, that's the Jewish Supreme Court, legal jurisdiction to go extradite religious offenders, not civil offenders. If you broke a civil ordinance back in Jerusalem or back in, in, in the nation of Israel, Rome had jurisdiction over that, but Rome gave religious jurisdiction to the Sanhedrin. So Saul went to the Sanhedrin and said, these people are religious offenders against the Mosaic law. Sanhedrin gave him letters to go to Damascus and extradite those people. So he's really orchestrating a religious inquisition. And his goal is to purge Judaism of idolaters just like Moses and Elijah had done before him. It's interesting that he says anybody belonging to the way was on his hit list. Now the way is a derogatory term that non-Christians called Christians because Jesus said what? I am the way the truth and the life. So the way is an exclusive way. The way to God is the only way. You're not going to get to God except through Jesus, period. There is no multiple ways. There's only one way. The Jews had a problem with that. The Jews believed the way to God was what? Law keeping. Keep the law perfectly and you will find favor with God. Right? Jesus told them the only problem was that no one does it. Absolutely no one. That's why Jesus had to come and he gave us his perfect righteousness because our righteousness, our law keeping was pathetic. We didn't keep the law, we never could. Saul's going to Damascus and Saul has a plan. Now you're going to see the sovereignty of God. Verse 3. As Saul was traveling toward Damascus, God is going to intercept him. Verse 3. And it came about, anytime you read in scripture, get a pen out, and it came about, that's the sovereignty of God. 
Anytime in scripture you see, and it came about, you say, well, why did it come about? Why did it come about right then? The sovereignty of God. God is underneath every, and it came about, you will ever see in scripture, and scripture is full of, and it came about. Anytime you see that, you think God's working. The Holy Spirit's fingerprints are underneath, and it came about. And it came about that as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So here we see the great reversal. Saul is planning to arrest Christians, and God arrests Saul. Acts 22 and 26 tells us this happened right about noon. The sun is at the highest point of the day, but the light that blinded Saul was not the sun from the sky, it was the Son of God from heaven. Saul had seen the same person that Stephen had saw back in Acts 6, the glorified Christ. Now, for those of you that want to know this, there are very, very few people in Scripture who have ever seen a glimpse of glory. Very, very few. Moses on Mount Sinai, correct? Ezekiel chapter 1 and chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 6 had a vision of heaven. Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. The Apostle John later on in Revelation 4 and 5. And Stephen in Acts 6. And Paul now in Acts 9. Very, very rare that humans get to see the heavens opened and get a picture of Jesus Christ in his glorified state. So Saul saw Jesus Christ and he's blinded and he fell to the ground. Uh, you would too, right? And he heard a voice asking him a question. And the voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And as we've said in this class multiple times, when God asks you a question, he is not seeking information. <laughs> he already knows the answer. Number two principle, when God repeats your name twice, what can you conclude? Uh, yeah. I have come to the conclusion that my name is repeated twice that God is saying, Brad, you really want to listen. Look at me. Listen, right? Just saying. Saul, Saul, what are you doing? It's time to evaluate your life. I want you to evaluate what you're doing and why you're doing. And you know something? That's not a bad question for us. It's pretty good on your birthday, especially when you're an old guy like me or on New Year's Day, to sit down and do an evaluation and say, where, where, where's the direction of my life? It's time to do an evaluation, just a checklist and say, Lord, am I doing, am I being what you want me to be? Or is it time to make some changes? So God is saying, Saul, where, what are you doing? Where are you going? What's the direction of your life? Why are you persecuting me? And Saul is now thoroughly confused. How could he be persecuting God when he believes he's defending God, right? I mean, he's going, God, you gave us the Mosaic law. I'm defending this. I am an advocate for righteousness and I'm killing those infidels. You should be happy. God says, Saul, you're persecuting me, verse 5. And Saul says, who are you, Lord? And he says, this is staggering. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise, enter the city, and it shall be told you what you must do. Here's the principle. When Jesus saves you, you get a new master and a new mission. One of the problems that I have in 
much of what passes for contemporary Christianity is that we treat salvation as if Jesus is just an add-on. Jesus is just a genie. Jesus is a spiritual Santa Claus to give us what we want. No, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you come face down, you come in humility, and you have a new master. Amen? Say amen. amen. And you have a new mission. You are not in charge. If you think you're in charge of your life and you call yourself a Christian, one of them is a lie. Right? Number one, you never were in charge. Right? We just think we're in charge. Jesus said, how many of you can add a hair to your head? Well, I'm trying to count the ones that are leaving, but at any rate. So Saul is stunned, and his first question is a good one. Who's talking to me? I mean, I'm hearing this voice in heaven. I see this glorified figure in the sky. I think I'm doing God's work. And this person says, you're persecuting me. So Saul says, who are you, Lord? Now, it's very interesting that Saul is already in a position of submission. He says, Lord. You know what Lord means? Master. Anytime in Scripture you see the Lord Jesus Christ, it means master. Right? The Greek there literally means despot. D-E-S-P-O-T. And in our culture, we think despots are always wicked. No, despots are always 100% in control. Now, if Jesus Christ is your master, what does that make you? Slave. Do you believe that? Do you behave like one? You know what a slave does? Whatever the master says. Do you know when a slave does it? Whenever the master says. And you know something? My flesh goes, <laughs> Are you nuts? I'm not a slave to anybody. I'm large and in charge. You know? I'm going to die someday, but I'll decide when. Right. Not. Right. If Jesus Christ is master and you say, Lord, Lord, Jesus said in Luke something 52, Luke 8, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Right? If he's Lord, you're a slave. He's a loving master. He's a loving master. You will never do anything that's not in your best interest, but he is master and we count on that. Lord, who are you? And the voice says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. James Boyce writes, God spoke and God was Jesus. And that is a shattering experience for, for Paul. Saul thought that Jesus was a false prophet. Jesus is not a false prophet. Saul thought Jesus was a dead imposter. He's not a dead imposter. He's the promised Messiah of Israel. The Old Testament spoke about him over and over and over again. He's the son of God and he's glorified in heaven. And if Jesus is God, then how could Saul be persecuting God if he's in heaven? And here's the point. Jesus said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The church of Jesus Christ is his what? His body, right? His body. The church is what? His bride. His bride. His bride. Jesus Christ so identifies with his people that when you persecute his bride, you're persecuting him. You know something? And, and, and I, I will put this on record. I think every woman, boy, I'm way out on a limb here, Marion, you may need to bail me out here. Every woman needs to know that there is a man in her life who will commit violence in her defense, if necessary. Do you understand that? 
Every woman needs to know, mother, daughter, sister, that there is a man, at least one, it could be an uncle, it could be an aunt, it could be a father, it could be a brother, who is willing to commit violence in her defense if necessary, right? You attack the bride of Christ, you attack Jesus himself. And he is going to deal with that. And he did deal with it. He threw him on the ground, on his face. And he said, you're persecuting me. My people who I bought with my blood are my family, the body of Christ. They're my family. I shed blood for them. I love them. You're persecuting me when you hurt them. And he had been doing that. Verse 7. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Now Saul was not traveling by himself, by the way. He probably had a pretty good contingent of the temple police with him. The temple police are the ones who supervise the security for the temple. But they didn't hear anything because God's not pursuing the temple police. He's pursuing who? Saul. One of the things that's interesting, when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, it was not an accident. God didn't, God was not trying to save somebody else and you kind of got close so you got saved by accident, right? Kind of rubbed off. When you get saved, Jesus Christ came after you directly, by name, by DNA, and he said, I love you, and I want you to be part of my forever family, right? He's going after Saul personally. This message was for Saul only. Ever sat in church, or maybe even ever sat in manna, and thought that God was talking only to you? Yeah, that's because he is. This is one of the beauties of the Holy Spirit that he can take this book, this truth, and take it and pierce our heart like a sword and say, Brad Hannock, this is for you. This is the truth I want you to obey. Bend the knee because if you bend the knee, you will receive blessing. And obedience always brings blessing. Amen? Say amen. amen. Obedience always brings blessing. And I can hear you say, oh yes, when my children obey me, it brings me blessing. No, 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 no. We're talking about you obeying Jesus. It brings you blessing. Yeah. I'm not saying the other's not a good deal, by the way. Verse 8. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him to Damascus. Here's the principle. Since the proud refuse God's grace, God humbles them before he heals them. Since the proud refuse God's grace, God humbles them before he heals them. You know, many, many times we ask God to do things. We plead for God to do things. We try and persuade him to do things. And we've always asked him to take the easy way, don't we? We say, God, if you could just touch so-and-so, if you could just change so-and-so, their life is so difficult. And if you could just make it easier. I'm sorry to say, folks, but if God makes our life easier, many times it doesn't draw us closer to him. It gives us the illusion that we're really smarter than we are. And so we walk away from him. Everything about Saul's conversion here is God-initiated. Did you ever think that Saul would probably not be a good candidate to be a follower of Jesus? Probably not a good candidate, right? I mean, he was arrogant. He was self-righteous. He was a murderer. He wasn't humbly asking God to save him or to forgive him. Do you know something else? God never asked Saul to repent. Do you see God saying, pleading with Saul to repent? Do you see that here? No, 
he knocked him on the ground, blinded him. And then what? Told him what to do next. Who's in charge? Who's in charge of this conversion process? God, only God. The only reason you're here is because God brought you here. None of us were seeking after God when he found us. Amen? Some of us, yours truly, had to be run over with a Mack truck before my hearing aid started to work. Right? Sometimes people have trouble hearing God when they're riding on their high horse. When you're face down in the dirt, it generally improves your ability to hear God's voice. Here's a proverb from Brad. Face on the floor, ears open. Nose in the air, ears closed. How about that, huh? Face on the floor, ears open. Nose in the air, ears closed. You know something? Either way, you can't trust your vision. If your face is on the floor, you're not trusting your vision. You're on the floor. You're humble. Your ears are open to what God's telling you. When your nose is in the air and you're all stuck on yourself, you can't see anything either. That's when you trip over your feet. Do lots of stupid things. I have done more stupid things than 61 years would give evidence of, but that's God's grace. Being made helpless can improve your hearing. Saul find that out. So Saul was blinded by the sight of Jesus. John MacArthur comments that Saul is blinded with the blazing image of the glorified Jesus. It was not the blindness of night. It was the blindness of light that Saul was blind. So the conqueror, Saul's going to go arrest people. The conqueror's been conquered. He was made helpless like a little child, had to be led in the hand into the city. One of the things that I have developed a lot of humility um, over or let's say a, a, a respect for this truth, when God wants to get your attention, he has ways to get your attention. Yes? The good news is when God gets your attention, he is only motivated by love. When God, any time God interacts in your life, his motive is love. His motive is compassion. His motive is care. And you go, man, Lord, if you really are compassionate, how come I'm going through so much pain? His motive is care. His motive is love. He has a plan for life. And you go, well, I don't understand it. Yes, I know. That's because he's God and you're not. Right? See, one of the things that we forget is the Lord is planning for eternity. The Lord wants us eternally joyful. Do you know something? We're not concerned about that. You know what we want? We want pleasure today. We want peace today. We want comfort and prosperity today. The Lord says, I'd rather have you in a position of dependence on me today so that you can be joyful forever than deluded today and believing life is going along and then be in sorrow forever. God ha always has eternity in mind. So when there's things in your life that don't make sense, what do you do? Trust him. Trust him. Trust him. He is a loving, loving, loving master. You don't ever have to doubt the love of God. All you have to do is look at the cross. Anytime you wonder whether Jesus loves you, anytime you look at your circumstances and you go, man, these are hard circumstances. What do you do? Look at the cross. You don't ever have to doubt that he loves you. He shed his blood. He's praying for you today. Today in heaven. Verse 9. Saul was three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. Sometimes when you're, when you're deep in grief, your appetite disappears. Saul was so deep in mourning over his sin that he lost his appetite. Here's the principle. When you love Jesus, your sin grieves you. And you will seek forgiveness. 
If you love Jesus, I, I initially wrote this, you can't hang on to Jesus and hold on to your sin at the same time. It doesn't work, right? Either you're going to hold on to Jesus and forsake your sin, or you're going to hug your sin and reject Jesus. You can't do both. Because Jesus Christ is not going to tolerate your sin because he knows your sin's going to kill you. It's cancer. So Saul spends three days alone with God. Who else spent three days alone with God in the Bible? Who? Jonah in the belly of a fish. I think it was dark and wet, right? Saul spends three days in the dark too. We know he's praying because God tells Ananias later on Saul's praying. I'll guarantee you Saul was praying. His whole world's turned upside down. The one he's been fighting against is now his new master, right? I expect that he had a lot of confession. How many people had he murdered or had murdered? How many people had he imprisoned? How many families got broken up because of his zealotry? You know, the really good news is God used this man to accomplish more for the gospel of Jesus Christ than any other human in history. And when you look at his past, you say, only God can do this. There's no other human explanation. Now, Saul is praying, God's orchestrating circumstances, verse 10. Now, the certain disciple of Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, go talk to somebody else. Is that what he said? Is that what he said? Lord, are you talking to me? I'm not here. I'm, I'm, going to, I'm taking a nap. What did he say? What's it say? Here I am. Here I am. Wow. See, God's plan involves people, fat people. Faithful, available, teachable. Y'all need a fat soul. Faithful, write it down. Don't look at me like I don't know what I'm talking about. Write it down. Faithful, available, teachable. God loves people with fat souls. Faithful, available, teachable. This is the only time Ananias is mentioned in Scripture. It says he was a Jewish follower of Jesus. That means he was a disciple. He was a learner. Acts 22 tells us he was devout. He was devoted. He had a reputation as a faithful man. God speaks to him in a vision. And Ananias, like Abraham, says, Lord, here I am. You know what he's saying? I'm available. I'm available. Jesus is master. Ananias knows that he's a slave. He's available for the master's use. So when God calls your name, do you say, here I am? By the way, he knows where you are. You're not telling anything. Yeah, you're just basically saying, am I willing to be used to accomplish your purposes? And God in verse 11 says, go, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man named Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying and he has seen in the vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And what's your conclusion when you read those two verses? Do you think God has a plan? Do you think it's a detailed plan? Yes, right? God has a plan and he wants to use Ananias. He wants to express his love for Saul through Ananias. And do you, other interesting part of this question or comment, Ananias' commands from the Lord, are they confusing or are they clear? They're, are they specific? Yes, he knows exactly what he's supposed to do. By the way, when God speaks to you, he never mumbles. He never stutters. He speaks with clarity. The problem is not his speaking, it's our willing to listen. By the way, there is a street called Straight. It's the main drag in Damascus today. It's three miles long, runs from the east gate to the west gate. They call it Darb al-Mustaquim today, but it's a straight street. 
and the house of Judas, Saul is praying there. He says, go lay hands on this guy. His sight's going to be restored. You don't need to fear Saul. He's praying. He's blind and he's mine. And verse 13, Ananias says what you and I would say. Are you kidding me? <laughs> really? Are we talking about the same guy, God? Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much harm he did to thy saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon thy name. Ananias has got his mind blown, right? Saul has been destroying followers of Jesus, killing them, and he's now ordered to go minister to this murderer. Really? Would you think God might have stuttered? You know, maybe you're talking about somebody who sounds like Saul, but it's not really Saul, right? This Saul is a butcher, right? God, are you sure? Interesting. They must have had a pretty good grapevine. Ananias knows that Saul was coming to murder Christians, and he hadn't even made it to town yet. Don't tell me they didn't have a good grapevine in those days and information passed quickly. The Lord is not impressed with Ananias's, but he doesn't rebuke him either. He says, verse 15, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. See, Saul has a new master, but God's going to give him a new mission. Saul, God has sovereignly chosen Saul to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. He's like a, an instrument. Just like a surgeon would select the exactly the right instrument to complete a surgery, God has selectively chosen Saul. Saul's going to go from murder to missions, from hatred to love, from large and in charge to humble and dependent, and from relying on himself to relying on God. He's chosen to be the leading spokesman for the gospel around the world. And this guy would not be number one on your list. Here's the problem for us. We go, whoa, that sounds pretty good, but it's going to involve what? Suffering. Suffering. Here's a question. <clears throat> what would you do if God called you to do a task and told you up front that this task meant you were going to suffer? I'm not talking about being married, okay? <laughs> or raising your children. I know there's suffering and all that. But God said, I have a task for you and it's going to involve suffering. Go and do it. Would you say, behold, here I am? Or would you say, um, talk to somebody else. I got to wash the car. I mean, come on. Got to pay some bills. Right, you know, take care of business here, Lord. Paul was going to suffer all the injuries that the world wanted to inflict on Jesus. But he was his representative, so he took that suffering. By the way, there are people in our world today who hate Jesus. You know why? They don't want to be told they're sinners. They love their sin. And when you tell them that they're sinners and they need a Savior, you know what they do? They don't like you. It's not about you. They don't like your master. They don't like to be told they're sinners, but if they don't come humbly, they're not going to get into heaven at all. That's why we go, we pray, we share the gospel with them, and let the Lord do the work. It says, Ananias obeyed, verse 17, and Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me here that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, when did Ananias obey? Does this say next week? It says when? It says when he heard God's voice, he went and obeyed, right? I want you to understand how dramatic this is. Saul has murdered Christians, many of which Ananias knew. 
And Ananias goes to this murderer, lays hands on him, and calls him, you scum. Is that what he said? What does he call him? Brother. When Jesus forgives you, you are adopted into his family. You know, this is, this is like a Jewish Holocaust survivor laying hands on Adolf Hitler and calling him brother. This is off the charts amazing without the power of God. It would never have happened. It's like you going into prison and doing this to somebody who's murdered a family member because God told you to because that person's now saved. And they're part of your family. You gotta be kidding. I'll bring the lightning myself. You wanna love them so much, Jesus, I'll send them to you now. Right? That's my flesh talking. I just want you to know, okay? Without the Holy Spirit, there's no way Ananias could do this. But he's obedient with what God calls him to do. And you know something? God has never asked you or I to do anything this hard. So why do we struggle with obedience? You serve a wonderful master. Ananias was obedient. He knew the power of God could save even Saul. And he went by faith and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. Brother Saul, receive your sight. So Ananias was willing and God was faithful. Verse 18 says, There immediately fell from his eyes something like scales. He regained his sight. He rose, was baptized. It doesn't say the first thing he did after three days without food was to eat, does it? What's the first thing he did? Got baptized, even before he ate food. Baptism is a public affirmation that you belong to God's family, that you are what's a declaration that you identify with Jesus' family and he is your Lord and master. If you haven't been baptized, do it. Don't be a secret agent Christian, right? Then he ate, verse 19, took food strengthened. Now for several days with the disciples. And verse 20, he immediately began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. Here's the last principle. People that love Jesus do what? Obey him and tell others about him. See, when you're really saved, your behavior will show it. Saul goes from murdering those who love Jesus to declaring that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the promised Messiah. By the way, when you love someone, do you try and hide them? Put them in the closet? When you love someone, what? You're proud of them. You want to share it, right? You want to share your love. That's what Saul does. Verse 21, everyone that listens to Saul continues to be amazed and says, isn't this the guy from Jerusalem that destroyed all those? And here he is in Damascus, and he's really, really uh, propounding the name of Jesus Christ. They cannot believe it. It's a 180-degree turnaround for him to go from against Christ to for Christ to killing Christians to loving Christians. You can't explain this apart from the divine intervention of the Holy Spirit. Verse 22, it says, He kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving from the Old Testament that Jesus was the Christ. This is real interesting. Throughout the Old Testament, the coming Messiah was predicted over and over and over and over and over again. And now the Holy Spirit's opened Saul's eyes and he understands us. How many of you have read Scripture for years and not understood it? And then one day... The Holy Spirit opens your eyes and you go, I get it. That one verse I could never figure out, I get it. And then you're looking and saying, how is it that I never got that before? It's so obvious. That's the Holy Spirit opening your mind to understand the Scripture. He does it all the time. If there's a passage of Scripture you don't understand, put a date next to it. A date. Start praying. 
that the Lord would open your mind to understand that. Could be six months, could be three months. I don't know. Could be a radio pastor. Could be you're sitting in church, Roger. Could be whatever it is you go, I get it. That's divine intervention. That's what happened here. He opened Saul's eyes to where he understood the scriptures and now he's demonstrating to the Jews that Jesus is their Messiah and what do they like? They don't like it, do they? They try and kill him. So Paul has killed those who proclaim the name of Jesus and now what's happening to him? They're trying to kill him, right? One thing's for sure. If you can't argue with the truth of the message, kill the messenger. That's exactly what Saul did to Stephen, right? Do we tend to do that today? Us in this enlightened 21st century? Of course we do. If someone doesn't want to hear the truth, it's just easier to shut them up than it is to listen to the truth and say, okay, I need to do something with this. Now, it's going to be very easy for you, those of you in this room and those of you who've been to the service this morning to go home and go, yeah, 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 okay, another great day in God's house. And if you do that, you will have missed about 95% of what you came here for. What you came here for was to be exposed to a relationship with Jesus Christ in worship and fellowship with brothers and sisters and to hear the truth so that you will obey it this week, right? So you need to leave here or leave the service. By the way, we haven't been to the service. That was a fabulous Mother's Day message to say, Lord, what is it you want me to do with what I heard today? How do you want to shape and change my behavior with the knowledge and the truth I now have? That really honors Jesus Christ is the obedience of that. Let me summarize. Here's the key idea. And this you need to take a pen on and do something with. Jesus' love is the power of God that can change anyone, even... Fill in the blanks. They may be your children, grandchildren, co-workers, bosses. Some of you may want to put some politicians' names in there if you're so inclined. Now, by the way, if you put their name here, you better be praying for them. You better be praying for them, right? Number two, when Jesus saves you, you get a new master and a new mission. That's part of salvation is bending the knee to Jesus Christ who loves you. Number three, since the proud refuse God's grace, God humbles them before he heals them. By the way, some of you have loved ones in your life that are in the process of being humbled. Here's rule number one, don't rescue them. If God is in the process of humbling someone you love to bring them to himself, pray and get out of the way and let God deal with them. Amen? When you try and rescue them, you get in the way of what God's trying to do. They may need to hurt before they can heal. I, that's very difficult for me to say, but it's extremely important. Number four, when you love Jesus, your sin will bother you. Your sin will grieve you. If you can cohabit with your sin without any conscience, then maybe you don't belong to Jesus. Because Jesus can't stand your sin. And he wants to forgive you, but he wants to heal you, and he wants to get rid of the sin. Right? Lastly, people that love Jesus, obey Jesus, and tell others about him. Okay, next week, Lord willing, Acts 10. Now that you know, go and do. I love you guys.